Hey there, it's Trey Kay. And recently, I was at the West Virginia State Capitol, and I came across this really fascinating event. The idea was to help people understand what it's like for the first few weeks after a person is released from prison. I want to welcome you to the reentry simulation. Can you all hear me okay? There are about 50 people here, and I've paired up with Michelle Thompson. She's director of outreach at the Bible Center Church. We'll walk through the reentry coming out of prison with about 200 bucks in our pockets. But I need a social security card, a birth certificate, and a state ID, I believe they said, to do anything. So the first thing I have to do is get state ID. Michelle and I will try to re-enter society after 13 years of incarceration. We're playing the role of a formerly incarcerated man named Alan. Here at the Capitol Rotunda, organizers with the West Virginia Reentry Council have set up a sort of course we'll try to navigate that takes us from one table to another. At each table, there are some specific actions required. We need to do them in the right sequence with limited resources and even more limited time. Right as we're waiting in this long line just to kind of go through the first step, it looks like this Feels almost hopeless. Feels almost impossible. As a church outreach director, Michelle says she helps people with all kinds of challenges get rental assistance, uh, transportation, or to pay bills. But this is her first time on this side of the situation. I'm so used to being on the other side of this, it's almost enough to make me tear up. (laughs) We get a state ID and head to check in with our probation officer. But we run out of time. Week one is over. And we didn't pay rent. So now we're homeless. To show that you are now unhoused, we have these bags here that contain all of your belongings. You have to carry all of your belongings everywhere with you. Over the next two weeks, we try to scrape together the money we need. Along the way, we get kicked out of an AA meeting, but finally we achieve another goal. Successfully attended treatment and counseling. Yay! Thank you, ma'am. Feeling a little better about myself. (laughs) In the meantime, we use up all of our transportation tickets. That's the only way to get to all of the support services we rely on and to work. And we haven't eaten, which means, according to this simulation, we are in bad shape. But they let us continue on to week three of the experience. We try to go to social services, and in the middle of that... Are you currently employed? I am, but I have to work because I don't have transportation. Are you a parole officer? Yes, ma'am. I'm in trouble. You sure are. I'm you skipped services. out the first week of probation. I need you to go to jail. And you had a positive screen. <laughs> Come back and see me when you get out, and we'll see if we can help you with anything. Thank you. You're welcome. So, back to jail I go. We're going back to jail? We're going back to jail because I didn't see my parole officer first week. No. Now that we're in jail, we have. Yeah, that's why we were like, at least we'll have a place to stay yes. and get to eat now. That's true. I'm not homeless. Tonight I can get out of the rain. Going through this simulation with Michelle is overwhelming. The sheer number of tasks and the gravity of those tasks is a surprise to me. Having a transportation ticket can mean the difference between homelessness or jail or death. Re-entry, that's what we're talking about today. What happens or doesn't when someone is released from prison? From PRX and West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Trey Kay, and this is Us and Them, the show where we tell the stories about the things that divide Americans. This is the most important period of process, right? Well, individuals like myself, when you go inside or you have served a com- any time in prison, the current system is made to break you. Reentry is about rebuilding, right? Rebuilding individuals. This is why it's so important 
that we rebuild individuals because of how broken the system is. That's Daryl McGraw. He says after 10 years in a Connecticut prison, he walked out equipped with nothing more than his GED and six composition notebooks filled with what he called his five-year plan for successful community reentry. He's now the founder of Formerly, Inc., an agency that supports formerly incarcerated people. So we need to receive these individuals and help them stand on their own. Like, you know, a lot of people want to be tough on individuals, but it's a human right to have housing, food, clothing. That's a human right. So we, we have to get past the punishment phase and get back to rehabilitating and helping rebuild our brothers and sisters. We're going to hear more from Daryl later in the show. But first, I want to introduce you to Raheem Buford. His reentry story shares at least one thing with Daryl's. Notebooks. This is my notebook of what it took for me to get out of prison. Raheem flips through a huge blue binder. Easily 100 pages. This is my rehabilitation resume. These are all the things that, that I've done to try to you know, be a better expression of myself. And that's there are certificates for preaching and cosmetology courses, anger management and yoga, articles and photos, his GED, and there are letters between him and his victim's family. We sat down to discuss the way he entered prison and re-entered society after a quarter century inside. So can you tell me who you are and what do you do? First of all, I would say that I am a human being who has journeyed through the struggles of life and found my voice in a most unusual place that most people probably would dread experiencing, which is prison. And I would consider myself a concerned citizen of society, a uh, social justice advocate, an organizer, an activist, a friend, uh, a narrative shaper, shifter, changer, someone who, who believes in humanity and who wants to participate as fully as possible in life. How long were you incarcerated? I was caged for 26 years of my life from age 18 to 44, seven different prisons throughout the state of Tennessee. And can you tell me a little bit about how it was that, that you came to be incarcerated? Nine months prior to the incident, which occurred April the 24th, 1989, I had been released from the juvenile detention center. And while I was there, my grandmother had passed away. And it was the first time in my life that I had felt pain and no one had hit me. And something clicked inside of me that made me so negative that um, it changed my life forever. Rahim says that he started committing robberies. His home life fell apart. He moved in with a friend and couldn't pay the bills. So he committed another crime. I went into a restaurant I shot a gun into the floor and a bullet ricocheted and it hit a guy. Was he harmed? Was he killed? Yes, he died three days later. And I uh, pled guilty to felony murder. At the time Raheem pled guilty, his attorney told him that if he did everything right, he could be eligible for parole in 19 years. Prison was horrifying. They shave all your hair off, shave your mustache. Right. And... Um, they take your civilian clothing, replace it with state garments, examination. It's, it's like what happened hundreds of years ago on the slave auction block. There's a lot of fear. Yes. There were conflicting thoughts because part of um, wanting to do the right thing and better myself was, was I sought forgiveness. Early on, Rahim joined the Nation of Islam. A few months later, he was transferred to a different facility, and then he was transferred again. Other inmates of the same faith offered him protection and encouragement. They helped him get his GED. 
old heads in prison are supposed to be the wise guys. And they're encouraging me, young blood, stay focused. You got potential. You're going to make it. You're going to get out of prison. I'm believing what they're saying, and I'm acting in a way that um, reflects that because I'm not getting in, into trouble, at least not yet. The next few years for Rahim are filled with extreme highs and lows. He cannot live up to the tenets of Islam, so he leaves. He starts selling drugs on the inside. He gets in serious trouble more than once, has a few stints in solitary, his dad dies, and then... The call that you don't want to get from prison is the call to the chaplain's office. My mother's crying, and she's telling me my sister's dead. And not only is my sister dead, but my sister's murdered. This is what... I told myself, I said, this is what you did to somebody else's family. Oh, wow. Because the thing that I was doing was trying to avoid the responsibility for what I had done consciously. And then when my sister was murdered, it made it all real in a way that I never could have experienced it. And the first sign that I had changed was when my brothers wanted to retaliate against the guy that killed my sister. And I said, well, if y'all do that, then y'all want me to die. Because what if this family felt the same way about me? Rahim had been in prison for about 10 years at that point. He'd been trying to better himself through education, through religion, but he hadn't accepted responsibility for taking a life. Then he was transferred to Riverbend Maximum Security Prison. And that's where the real thing happened. Because that's when I knew that I was going to get out of prison. Fast forward to 2003, I'm hearing that there are college classes being offered. Rahim is told he isn't eligible because he has no previous college experience. So he watches the class through a window. After a few weeks of this, a woman comes out, tells Rahim if he can write an essay, he's in. So he does. And he is. And wow, I'm in the right place. I'm ready. I'm doing my work. There was a transformation. And not only was there a transformation, but then my purpose was seeded. My purpose, who I am, my vocation, my voice emerged. This me that is now Raheem Buford emerged in a way that I've self-realized. Raheem gets a parole date in 2013. But his release is denied based on the seriousness of his offense. He's devastated. He comes up for parole again in 2015 and has a sense that this time is different. He has a scholarship. He has college credits and is writing a book. He's been communicating with his victim's sister. Professors and community members are going to speak on his behalf. He gets the four votes he needs for release. Rahim has a dream job waiting, and he enrolls in school. He can live with his mother, and he saved up a couple of grand for a car. So can you talk to me about the importance of the transition time between leaving prison and then coming back into society? Like, what's that like? Oh, wow. For me, it was a mixed emotion of extreme elation right. and fear. Okay. Because I didn't know what to expect from my family and society. And again, with the relationships, I had a community of people already waiting on me. And so for everything that I needed, there was somebody that I could call that could help me along the way. You had a support network. I had a great support network. And that's just not the case for my community. And that's the reason why Unheard Voices exist as well. So, so tell me about that. So the Unheard Voices Outreach is a non-for-profit 501c3 organization that I founded for the purpose of giving a voice to this group of people who are in prison, who are out of prison, formerly incarcerated, who are seen as um, untouchables in a way. Right. In someone who has been incarcerated who's coming out what's going on in their mind and body as they are coming out of this process of being incarcerated mm -hmm. and re-entering mm -hmm. back into society 
So in the mind, there's this thought of, you know, will I be accepted? Will I be rejected? Will I survive? Can I make it? In the body, there's still trauma from the past experience because you don't get the mental health support that you need in prison. Right. They're already prepared to experience felonism. 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 Uh-huh. Felonism is the legal, legislative, social, institutionalized barriers that are put between us and the second chance that we desire. And as a result of felonism, a lot of people end up recidivating because there was no rehabilitation or transformation. And these individuals, when they reach a certain level of maximum pressure, maximum tension, maximum confusion, they revert right. back to the, the mind that never was changed to begin with. We're having problems dealing with our emotions. We're having problems communicating effectively. And these are things that had they been addressed while we were in prison would have increased our chances to su succeed. But now we're out here fending for ourselves and we potentially can cause harm. If we know that 97% are going to be released, why would you endanger society by not giving individuals the proper mental health treatment that they need? It, it seems like it comes down to a question. Is this rehabilitation? Is this something that you hope that people are going to go serve their time while they're there? Uh, hopefully, many of them might have uh, opportunities that they can take advantage of like you have done. But, but that when they get out, they also need some more support and that we're spending a lot of money to, to incarcerate or as you've described, cage, maybe there might be a, a way to reallocate that money. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. People who change in prison is in spite of, not because of. And in addition to that, we have to acknowledge the rehabilitation is a misnomer because rehabilitation really implies that you deal with the prefix to go back. People who go to prison have nothing to go back to in terms of they were never really habilitated. They, 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 wait, wait, wait. So you're saying they were never really habilitated. You're saying they didn't have ability. So, right. so re means that you're going to have another right. Right. chance at it. Right. You have to heal and you have to transform. There is no healing and it's very little transformation. And so the system already knows that it is a revolving door. Can you imagine what's happening to human beings who are put into a system that humanity is removed they're giving these uh subhuman titles inmate convict criminal whatever and they're creating codependency by giving you every single thing that you need food clothing shelter and prison in tennessee is the only place where you nearly have 100 percent employment so i'm totally creating a dependent person upon a criminal legal system and this same person who didn't have to go look for a job. The job was right here. The money, paychecks, everything was all in one place. And then you put this same person right back in society. But even before you get to felonism, you have a mentality of a person who cannot succeed because he or she is out of place in a world that you really have to be functional. But it sounds to me like what you're saying is that this is not just a one-way street. Right. That in many ways, folks like you who were incarcerated, you're actually doing your part to keep your part right. of the street clean. Right. And when you say felonism, <laughs> mm -hmm. you're saying if we want a system, and again, I'm going to use the term rehabilitation again, but uh -huh. if we want something where people are going to be accountable for, for the, the wrongs that they have done, but we want to have the opportunity for them to come out, then... We also need to do, the people on the outside need to do some internal work to keep their side of the street clean as well. Right. We have to create space for a second chance society to exist. So that means people on the outside have to do some work as well. We have to be partners. You have to be a neighbor. You have to be welcoming. Like, tell me how it is that you see this as an us and them dynamic. When people refer to you as an ex-con or something that is subhuman 
I can't trust you. And since I can't trust you, I got to put some distance between you. So just like we sent you to prison, we're still not ready for you to come. So we're going to put up these psychological institutional barriers so that we can frustrate your efforts. And we're going to show you that really you haven't changed. But some of us believe in second chances, right? And some of us believe in this idea that America is that place where you can overcome whatever your past is. It's possible for everyone if we get the resources to put people in position to succeed. Because if it's us against them or if it's us and them and not against them, but it's us and them. If us and them can at least talk, maybe we can create a new reality at some point. Rahim says people of all ages, faiths, races, experience challenges when they re-enter society. And that's why he started his nonprofit. People like Thomas Murphy or Tom Tom are the reason he continues his work. So, let me let him know I'm here. I'm here, Rahim. All right, hey, Tom, just be yourself, man. Don't. Don't change. Be the Tom Tom that I know. That's that's what we need you for, all right? Okay, Rob. All right. All right I'm telling you this story. I got you, Tom. Okay. All right, be the normal self. Okay. Tom Tom was incarcerated for 31 years. His story of reentry is very different than Rahim's. I came in. I was 24. They released me at 56 years old. I was released 2000 and... 16, going to 17, something like that. 31 years, $35. I don't have no money. Parole boy want fees. How can I pay fees, pay rent, get somewhere to live? Good credit. I got good credit. The only thing is hurting me, I am a convicted pal. So Tom Tom takes his 35 bucks and goes to a halfway house. He stays there for six months, as long as he can pay rent. While he's there, he gets a driver's license. He's able to finance a vehicle, but he can't pay rent. So he's asked to leave. He packs up all of his things and stays on his brother's couch temporarily. I uh, went and filed application, application, application. You got to pay for them fees, them application. So I asked one lady, how far you go back? She said indefinitely. So I said, you a church going woman? She said, yeah. I said, how did you get your job? She thought I was being smart. I said, last time I know, couldn't nobody cast a stone. I had to get my brother with his good credit and his good life that he built to co-sign for me to get me a place. Tom Tom's working, setting up theater lights. He's living in the apartment he got, thanks to his brother. Then one day, he's on his way to pick up his paycheck. He's waiting in a stoplight, and he's hit by another car. T-bone in the side. I don't know. How, it, it's like you sitting here. The seatbelt choked me. Glass is way over there. I'm 61 year old. My back is killing me. I already hurting from prison. Car's gone. I can't work. He goes to physical therapy and applies for unemployment, which he still hasn't received. He stays in good communication with his apartment manager every week. He says the woman there is kind. And he finds some odd jobs just to get by and to afford another car. Because, again, I'm determined. I know we got to get money. And I told the lady at the office, ma'am, I got you. I know. But I've been in a wreck. And I told her, ma'am, now I am 60% ready to, I can go back to work. They got it in my files. She looked me in the eye and all that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I go to work that Tuesday. I get off of work, hard work. But at that point, he was three months behind in rent. So he was evicted. All his possessions were put in the dumpster. All my property is gone. I had to sit there all night cold with a long cord for my phone charger to protect my bed. Two o'clock, people pull it up, try to get it. Four o'clock, six o'clock, they pull up in the red truck. I said, leave my bed alone. 
So in the morning, I get a U-Haul, take my bed, get my blood pressure medicine out of the house. The sheriff came out and opened and gave my medicine. So four years after his release from prison, Tom Tom is starting over, trying to find housing with a felony record. He's bouncing around from pay-by-the-week hotels to his brother's couch and hanging on to the resources he does have. I talked to a lot of spiritual people at the night where I prayed. I cried. I ain't got no more tears. I done cried enough. God bless me. My thrill and my journey is to help out on this planet. After a break, we'll hear from victims' rights advocates about what reentry means to them and how that's changed over time. I wanted them to be punished. I wanted them to feel the pain that they'd caused other innocent people. That was my mindset as a victim advocate until I had the opportunity to actually begin working with offenders. I'm Trey Kay, and you're listening to Us and Them. This program is supported in part by the West Virginia Humanities Council, the CRC Foundation, and the Just Trust. Music lifts us up and brings us together, even when we can't get together in person. Mountain Stage brings you live performances on the air, online, and in our podcast. They remind you how it feels to be in a live audience listening to live music. This is Larry Gross, host of Mountain Stage. Find a link to our stations and our podcast online at mountainstage.org. Hey, Trey here, and this is Us and Them from PRX and West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Earlier when I was at the reentry simulation at the West Virginia State Capitol, I met Jeremiah Nelson. He's with the West Virginia Reentry Council and the REACH Initiative. REACH stands for Restore, Empower, and Attain Connections with Hope. They organized the event. Jeremiah says for some reentering society after incarceration, the most important things can be the most basic. Birth certificates, social security cards, IDs, and transportation make the difference between surviving in the outside world and landing back inside. In prison, he says a person only makes about 100 decisions a day. You're told when and where to do everything. On the outside, life can mean 30,000 decisions a day. But you'll hear people say, well, they need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, you know, and everything like that. But it's hard to do that if you don't have boots or straps, you know. And this simulation in many ways is, well, let's kind of look at what what pulling yourself up by the bootstraps might be like. like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, But, you know, I think the biggest thing with this is it creates the awareness and more people see some of those barriers uh, that people face coming out. Beyond those basic needs, Jeremiah says reentry issues can be lifelong, like the felonism Raheem talked about or the ongoing challenges TomTom is currently experiencing. There's a need for a real second chance. There's some stuff out there like the Clean Slate Initiative uh, that are more of a movement towards, you know what? We're going to take that off your record because you need to actually really have a second chance. Second chance means everything's open to me again. You know, for a mistake that a person makes for me 17 years ago or for someone who's 18 or 19 and who is now 40, 50 years old, why should that still be hanging over their head that many years later? Thinking about the ways to improve reentry into the free world seems a vital aspect of our criminal justice system. But I also got to thinking about how all this sounds to the victims of crimes. People who survive an armed robbery or carjacking can experience lifelong trauma. The family and friends of those injured or killed in crimes rarely get a second chance. Two women from Tennessee are working to help define what a victim-centered approach to reentry might look like. My name is Verna Wyatt, and I'm co-founder of Tennessee Voices for Victims. I've been 
a victim advocate since 1991 when my sister-in-law uh, was raped and murdered. And I am Valerie Craig, and I am a victim advocate. I'm a co-founder of Tennessee Voices for Victims. And um, I always just say that I was called into this line of work. Verna, you just mentioned that that you are a survivor of homicide. Is that how you got into this work? Yes. My sister-in-law, who had been my best friend for 15 years when she was murdered, my whole world uh turned upside down and nothing was ever going to be the same again. And what I found was I was so angry at the system. I was so angry at people that could do such horrible, despicable things to innocent people that I wanted to uh, prevent that from happening to other people. The pain that's caused from a murder is so intense. It's so unfair. There's so many emotions that flood your uh, psyche all at the same time that it's just overwhelming and it's overwhelming forever. The people that experience homicide just have to learn to live in and create a new normal and it's hard. And so I wanted to prevent other people from having to do that hard work. Briefly, I think you both met in another organization and then you pulled together in, in prisons. Yes. And can you tell me the before and after on this shift? I had no pity or sympathy for people who were incarcerated um, because the majority of victims that I have worked with, Valerie has worked with, have been victimized by repeat offenders. So I wanted no special circumstances for offenders. I wanted them to serve their full time. I wanted them to be punished. I wanted them to feel the pain that they'd caused other innocent people. That was my mindset as a victim advocate until I had the opportunity to actually begin working with offenders. And if you had told me that Valerie and I would be teaching in prisons and working with incarcerated men and women, I would have said, you have lost your ever-loving mind. <laughs> but the reality is also, though, advocates in general would have said that at that particular point. You know, the whole concept of us versus them um, has been alive and well in this field. And, I mean, to this day, people still don't totally understand why victim advocates would go into the prisons. Verna and Valerie knew someone who was working with the Tennessee Department of Corrections on a victim-centered approach to criminal justice reform. The program would bring victims of violent crimes into prison to talk about their experiences. She said, will you come and share your story with a, a group of um, men that are in our class at Riverbend Prison? And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And she said, well, do it because you're my friend. And so I agreed to do that it. That still seems like a big ask. That was a big ask. <laughs> that was a big ask. I mean, because they're not exactly roomy in there. You know, any any kind of common area that you have that gets used for any kind of programming tends to be really tight. And so not only are you asking a survivor to come in and unpack all of that pain and that suffering in a room with people that you don't even know if they're going to really receive it or not. Well, Verna, take me there. What was that like? I had a plan. I wanted those men to feel pain. That's That was my objective. I want them to feel pain. And so um, I watched th their faces as each victim shared their story. And then when I got to share my story, I looked, I looked every single one of them in the eye. And I told them about my pain, about the the story of what happened to Martha, how it totally devastated her children, her husband, her father. And at the end, they're allowed to, to make comments or answer questions. And the comments and questions that they had were very appropriate. And I realized as I'm looking into their face that what I was saying was registering with them. So when we left, the assistant commissioner said, well, how was that, Berna? And I said, well, if you want me to do that again, I will. Because if just one of those people look at victims as a human being and understand that instead of a mark or an opportunity, then maybe they won't victimize. Or maybe if they do victimize, they'll have that in mind and the violence will be less or whatever. And he said, Verna, 
you know, I know that you want to lock them up and throw away the key. He said, that's not reality. 98% of the people who are locked up are coming back to our community. How do you want them coming back? And you know what? That was like a punch in my gut because all these years, not one time had I ever thought about that. All those people are coming back, the majority of them. And how do I want them coming back? After that experience, Verna met someone who'd served time who was now working with a nonprofit helping men reintegrate after prison. She saw in him something she hadn't seen before. She realized the world would be a better place if he got a second chance. At that same time, the victim impact class she had attended couldn't find a facilitator and was in danger of shutting down. So, Verna and Valerie offered to take it on. What we walked in was with that same attitude that Verna talked about in going into Riverbend of, we are here to present to you the pain that you have caused, and we are kind of like these avenging angels. So you begin to learn their stories, and you begin to hear their history, and you begin, as you are talking about really hard topics like child sex abuse and domestic violence, they're starting to hear stories that remind them of their own stories, and they begin to just kind of spontaneously share with two victim advocates that they they that they have my women yeah they have, that they have never laid eyes on before and suddenly as victim advocates right i mean like this is why we begin leaving this class looking at each other and just recognizing you know what what we're teaching here is a room full of victims uh, now don't know it who don't know who don't know it now where the tension begins to come in as victim advocates, though, is just because you're teaching a room full of victims, you also have to keep in mind that they have created crime victims. And so now how do you interact? How do you interface in such a way that validates and acknowledges their own history, yet still holds them in a place of accountability? They started teaching the classes differently. Understanding these incarcerated men were also victims, Verna and Valerie wanted to help them get in touch with that as a way for the men to understand themselves. That's when the two victims' rights advocates and their classes of incarcerated men began to see the beginnings of a mutual respect. So, Verna, earlier you told me about that realization you would like to lock them up and throw away the key, but the reality is, is that these people are going to be coming out. Can you help me understand how you define what reentry is for you? What is that like? Well, it, it's scary the way it's happening now. Our prisons are full of people that have layers of the victimizations that we rush out to minister to every day. What we're doing, oh, let's get them a GED. Let's um, let's give them a parenting class. You know what, if you don't heal what's going on down here, uh, in deep inside that has all that trauma and abuse and that they don't even know it, their coping skills become things like addiction and violence and self-harm. If that's your coping mechanism and you don't heal the trauma, that's triggering that kind of a coping mechanism and they're not teaching other coping mechanisms, which is not happening while they're incarcerated, right. generally speaking. When they come out then, what that means is, is that they still have all of those traumas that they don't necessarily understand very well. And they have the same coping skills that have probably been honed in prison so it's it becomes this this pretty significant double-edged sword that when they then return into society that does not have some intervention then what we see is not just the repeat of criminal behavior it's that repeat of addiction it's that repeat it's of coping harm yeah it's that it's that hopefully your mechanism i don't believe that when people leave prison that any of them want to go back huh i don't think that that is ever a goal that what we see is that revolving door. I feel like Valerie and I just shine a light 
on what their issues are that they don't really realize. But then it's so frustrating for us because what they really need then is they need some therapeutic support. And in prison, you don't have that. So like for me, reentry, none of it's working right. The problem is traumatic abuse that has been layered on over the years and it's not been addressed or healed and we're not healing it. But do you suspect that because of this trauma that they're going to continue um, perpetuating it and traumatize other people? I don't even think I could give you a number of how often we have taught domestic violence classes or child abuse classes. And we have heard stories like this one where this young man, he was probably in his 20s and he is sitting there and you get to see him. He is moving in his seat and he is just getting agitated and angry. And finally, his hand shoots up and he goes, Miss Valerie, he's like, I just he's like, I just have to tell you this story. And he said, you know, when I was 15, he said, I was talking back to my mom and she went into the kitchen and she came back with a knife and she stabbed me with it. And I never talked back to her again. So he is presenting this to me and Verna as if this is a good example. It's appropriate. Of appropriate <sighs> discipline. And it was in that moment that I realized he doesn't understand why that would be a problem. And therein lies my challenge as the facilitator. Because clearly, I've now got to work on meeting you in this place where that would be considered normal. Valerie, I just yeah. I just want to make sure that I get from you, like, how do you define reentry? Personally, I think as a society, we need to be thinking about reentry from moment of arrest. of arrest. The whole system needs to have the one singular thought in mind. This person will be back on our streets. It is my opinion that everybody from law enforcement on down really needs to be thinking about re-entry. Every single system needs to be thinking about how do I interact with this person who is in trauma? I mean, I know that one of the most frustrating things for police officers is the the catch and the release right. that's happening. I pick them up, we release them, I pick, up, pick them up and I release them. How do we interface in a therapeutic healing way from that first moment of contact. And then, you know, and I don't want to just, you know, harp on law enforcement. I mean, it goes from there. I mean, it's the DAs and it is the public defenders and it is the judges and it is, you know, the whole bail issues. And then it is the correctional officers. I mean, like it, it just kind of goes down the line. But if we don't help that young man understand that his mother should not have stabbed him because he talked back to her, I, I don't know how he would come out of prison without continuing the behavior that he's always had. If it's We've a, got to have the intersection. Those points of intersection during reentry are key. And that's where Daryl McGraw now focuses his efforts. After 10 years in a Connecticut prison, he is now a criminal justice reform expert. Daryl says he reentered society with a plan for who he wanted to be. He then went on to found formerly Inc., and says he's been able to implement some reentry ideas to help other folks reintegrate. One example, forensic peer support. We're training individuals with lived experience of the criminal justice system who have been incarcerated or have been involved in the criminal justice system. And now you train them to teach others how to navigate and how to identify and also how not to get frustrated when the nose come because the nose do come, right? They do, you know, when doors close in your face, how not to get frustrated, how to support those individuals upon transition. One thing that America does really well is incarcerating people. We incarcerate more people than any other country in the world. However, we do a terrible job of reentry. Reentry doesn't begin 60 days or 90 days before release. The system should be working on preparing me for release, no matter how much time I have. Is it the difference between a mindset of it's about punishment, but we want to rehabilitate right. as opposed to this is just about punishment? Well, unfortunately, the evidence that we have is that America, it is about punishment. When you look at other countries like Norway or Germany, the punishment is the loss of freedom. 
right? Here, it's not only the loss of freedom, but their punishment and dehumanization go hand in hand in this system, in this structure. Whereas when you look at other countries, it's really focusing about, okay, we're going to take this much time away from you, but while you're here, you're going to leave a better human being. We do not see that across the board in this country. We're not responsible for how the individual goes in the prison, but as human beings, as taxpayers, we should be concerned on how they come home. And it came up with an organization that we could provide that knowledge and that bridge because there is no bridge from the correctional system to the community. And I always look at it as like a three-legged stool, right? And it's CSI, right? And I know what you're thinking, Trey, you're thinking currency and investigator, but it's communities, systems, and individuals. All three of them must work in unison for an individual to have success. The community has to be receptive for the individual to return home. The system has to prepare and have, you know, a system to receive these individuals. And while they're inside, a system to prepare individuals to come home and a place for them to go. And then the individual has to be prepared to return back to the community. And that's what you're doing with Formerly Inc. is is, is really trying to reinforce yes. that three-legged stool. People call me all the time and say, hey... My relative is coming home. How do I prepare for them? What should I expect? So on and so forth. So we are that bridge from the correctional center to the community. But the one thing that we're always encouraging across the state is let us train formerly incarcerated people that you will be well on your way because those individuals know where the supports are in the community. They're successful because they've already navigated those waters in your community. What do we mean when we talk about reentry? And, and I guess what I'd like to know is why is this a, such an important period or process? This is the most important period or process, right? The current system is made to break you. Reentry is about rebuilding, rebuilding individuals. This is why it's so important that we rebuild individuals because of how broken the system is. And the system is designed to break individuals. So we need to receive these individuals and help them stand on their own. How do reentry and recidivism correlate? They go hand in hand. Our country operates at a 70% recidivism rate. And the unfortunate part about the 70% recidivism is this. We put millions of dollars into the correctional system. And that 70% is... When those people cycle back into the system, so if you do reentry well, you will see a lower recidivism rate, and that starts from the inside. It's an inside job. A lot of my colleagues will say the system's working perfectly. They don't prepare individuals because they need you to cycle in and out. That's why prisons are built so well. It's a million-dollar business, so they want you to cycle in and out. My job is to disrupt that cycle by preparing individuals and saying, you don't never have to go back to prison. Can you walk me through some of the states who are doing particularly good with regard to their work on reentry? You know, a lot of states have been receptive. My friends in Utah, they're doing some really amazing work out there. They've been receptive to the forensic peer support, so they've been doing that work. They have been doing the work where they have reentry centers, right? They'll have once a week where people who are impacted by the criminal justice system can come to the sheriff's office and they have almost like a job fair, but it's like weekly where they have different services, a service fair. So if you're impacted, you know, you go there, they'll have like maybe social security or social services or these different areas. So there's a support system that's being there. What else do we need to, I guess, to transition from the system that, that seems to be more about punishment to a system that is about transformation and hopefully rehabilitation. We need a reentry czar, somebody that oversees reentry and that funding real money is put towards reentry services nationally. Reentry and criminal justice reform should be a separate body and somebody with lived experience should be running those systems and making sure that the large organizations with the great grant writers are not the only ones providing services because the grassroots organizations are starving, yet doing really great work on the ground. Darren McGraw says it's vital 
to have people with prison experience making sure that when grants are written and programs start out, the money does what's intended when it gets to the streets. You know, I expected this story would show us a really wide chasm between the perspectives of advocates for victims' rights and those focused on a person's re-entry from prison. But Verna Wyatt and Valerie Craig, who created Tennessee Voices for Victims, showed me another truth. They say many of us, including lots of men and women behind bars, are victims. And they believe we need to address that trauma and victimization before we can start creating a better way for people to re-enter the free world. And once they do, well, the conversations I've been having make me realize that we all can have some role to play in helping formerly incarcerated people succeed. Maybe it's reconsidering a neighborhood proposal for a halfway house, or broadening our understanding of what it actually takes to succeed in a second chance, and maybe supporting legislation and reform. Finding housing, work, those things take support. Being welcomed is key. That's part of what Daryl McGraw mentioned, that a community needs to be receptive. It's that three-legged stool, and each of us are a part of at least one leg of that stool. You've been listening to Us and Them. Our team for this show was me, Trey Kay, Tasha A.F. Lemley, Matthew Hancock, and Kate Smith. Special thanks to Steve Samra and Nikki Gozer. Michael Lipton, Tristam Lozow, and Ahmad Solomon wrote and performed the Us and Them show music. Mark Lerner designed our logo. The marvelous people at PRX and West Virginia Public Broadcasting make Us and Them possible. So do grants from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the West Virginia Humanities Council, the CRC Foundation, and the Just Trust. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. Share them with us on our Facebook page or on Twitter at UsThemPodcast or to me personally at Trey underscore K. Us and Them was originally developed with assistance from the Mentorship Program at AIR, the Association of Independence in Radio. Hey. We'll see you next time on Us and Them. Support for this podcast comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.